Episode 20, Giant Steps, Small Thinking. The universe is, of course, filled with symmetry, but it turns out that all of the most interesting and soulful stuff involves breaking the symmetry, and that includes music. So in this episode, I'm going to take a deep dive into symmetry and the breaking thereof, and how the tension between these two apparently opposite states is what makes for great music, as long as you can find the proper balance. First this. Hi, it's Peter Saltzman. You're listening to Improvisations on the Ledge. If you're enjoying this podcast with its unique blend of piano and verbal improvisation, please subscribe, give it five stars, and write a verbose review with lots of big words. On to the show. There's this rather iconic tune by the great John Coltrane called Giant Steps that most jazz musicians know and maybe nobody else except jazz aficionados, which are people who think they love jazz. And this tune is one of a rather small set of tunes that jazz musicians are expected to master. At least they were back in my day, back when I was alive, as my kids like to say. From each era of jazz, there's a tune or two that you're supposed to cut your teeth on to prove your metal and all those other cliches. In general, the blues from every era is one of those traditional blues, bebop blues, modern blues, postmodern blues, um, whatever comes after postmodern post-ancient blues, and that's maybe the most fundamental form that you're expected to master. And then there's things like rhythm changes, which is chord changes based on the famous I Got Rhythm by George Gershwin. That was, during the bebop era, used as the framework for many songs, and even post-bop, like Oleo by Sonny Rollins is one of my favorites. Again, you were expected to be able to master these changes. There's a kind of competitive aspect to this that's always been in jazz, and in really all music, that you had to nail that. It's like in classical music, pianists need to be able to play the, whatever, Chopin etudes. And then there's modal classics like So What from Miles Davis's uh, kind of blue album. And then there's Giant Steps, kind of fitting near the end of the post-bop era, and it was recorded in 1959. The name of the album is Giant Steps. You can go check it out. The title cut is the first tune. It has some great tunes on it, including Saida's flute song, Naima, Mr. PC, a great minor blues, Cousin Mary. But Giant Steps opens this set. The album itself is iconic. It's number 102 on Rolling Stone's greatest albums of ever. It's definitely not one of Coltrane's greatest albums. And it just shows you what the people at Rolling Stones, they're, they're probably thinking, well, we put Miles Davis at you know, whatever, 20-something, uh, kind of blue. So we got we to gotta find another black jazz musician to put on there. Okay, Coltrane, Coltrane's big. What's famous by Coltrane? Giant Steps. But it's, uh, it's definitely not one of his greatest albums. So this tune, as I said, is one of these classic jazz tunes that you're supposed to kind of cut your teeth on, be able to prove your metal. But there's 
an interesting thing about this song is that the nature of the way it's written, the chord structure, is such that it makes it very hard to be actually musical. It's very symmetrical, by which I mean it has a pattern that keeps repeating, and if you follow the symmetry too closely, you will be very mechanical in your playing. So here's the tune, first part. That's the first phrase, then... Now, you may not be a musician, or you may be, but in any case, you should be able to notice that there's a pattern there that repeats. You have, just melodically speaking, and then you have this kind of turnaround. And you can hear that these are the same musical phrase. And then you have the thing in between. It is symmetrical. It moves the exact same pattern down by a major third. And the whole tune is built on these descending and then ascending major thirds. It's kind of a brilliant, ingenious exercise in symmetrical composing. And I use that word exercise by accident on purpose, as you'll see in a minute. So the tune goes, let me continue... Now he does the rising part. You'll hear this phrase four times. And then you hear it again, up a major third. And then you hear it again, up a major third. And then you hear it again, up a major third. And then we turn around to get back to the beginning, sort of a breaking of the symmetry, not by a major third. Then it continues. So there's the tune. You could hear, as I described it, this built-in symmetry. Now, this is not a bad thing. All music has symmetry, all art. Nature is filled with it. But when there's too much symmetry in music, it becomes mechanical, almost inhuman. And a few weeks ago, my friend who I mentioned in a previous episode, David Bloom, he sent out one of his email to his the Bloom School Jazz clients, and it was about this tune, Giant Steps, and Coltrane's performance on it. And he said in that little piece that something that I think a lot of us have thought for many years, that Coltrane's performance, while it's technically flawless, is kind of lacking in musicality. It doesn't have an arc, doesn't tell a story. It's just a bunch of fast eighth notes over this pattern of highly symmetrical chord changes. (laughs) ¶¶ 
So a little backstory on the recording. Coltrane apparently woodshedded, jazz terminology for practicing a lot, on this tune that he wrote. It's only 16 bars, but it's very complicated to improvise on. He woodshedded for maybe six months, and he brings it into this session uh, with various musicians, including the great Tommy Flanagan on piano. He was Ella Fitzgerald's accompanist for years. Wonderful player. Of course, so Coltrane had been practicing and mastering these changes for six months. He brings it in, and he nails the solo. From a technical standpoint, you can't argue with it. And then he gives Tommy Flanagan, who has not had six months to master these chord changes, he's had probably six minutes at most. And his solo is rather fumbling. What this leads me to believe is that Coltrane, who was a deeply spiritual, deeply thoughtful man, fortunately also had a mean streak. He kind of embarrassed the dude, but it kind of makes me admire Coltrane more because he's so like, otherwise he's deified in the jazz community as almost like it's this, this godlike spiritual figure. There's a church of John Coltrane, I believe, in San Francisco, as there should be. Why not? Anyway, getting back to it, the performance, as David Bloom pointed out, is lacking in truly musical characteristics. And I think the reason for that is the symmetry of the tune forces you into a kind of mechanical style of playing if you don't break the symmetry, meaning you have to play against this perfect symmetry in the tune by being, well, asymmetrical. early 30s when he recorded this, may not 
have been ready to do that yet. And it's interesting that after doing this album, he left this style of writing and playing behind and went for a simpler, a modal approach with fewer chords or a kind of more bluesy approach, again, with fewer chords. I think he recognized the inherent limitation of having these, this highly symmetrical setup that it was, uh, while technically it was a great exercise, it was limiting his musicality. But the question I ask, there's something beautiful about the tune. The late Marion McCartland, who had the uh, series on NPR Piano Jazz, mentioned that she loved to play the tune as a ballad because the chords were just, the changes were beautiful. So... they are. There's something very rich and lush about these chord changes. But they also, I think part of the reason Marion wanted to play it as a ballad is because she could play up that part and avoid the symmetry when you play it at a faster tempo like Coltrane did. That forces you into kind of a very patterned mechanical approach to playing. That forces in a way you to play it like it's an etude, a study an exercise in non-musicality. You can, of course, go listen to the original, but let me give you a sense of slowed-down improvisation, and I did air quotes there. How do you do uh, air quotes in a podcast? Slowed-down improvisation. There, that, that, that will suffice. To give you a sense of how it could be played super symmetrically, Supersymmetry is like uh, string theory. There's And there's too much symmetry in string theory, by the way. That's physics. All right, so here we go. I'm going to purposely do this as symmetrically as possible. I started to break out of the pattern, but you get the idea of just this pattern style of playing. And again, it's hard not to play that way in this tune. So as a improviser, you have to almost force yourself to break the symmetry. So let's see if I could do that.
Not so much. You could maybe hear that it's a struggle for me anyway to break out of it when I'm playing it in that kind of traditional jazz solo format. I struggle with it. But from a personal standpoint, I think like a lot of musicians, jazz musicians, and I don't really consider myself a jazz musician. I'm a musician who's got a deep background in what's called jazz, which is kind of a coverall for a lot of different types of music, actually. Anyway, from a personal standpoint, I felt at some point in my life the need to tackle this tune. Why? Uh, Part of it was the ego thing, proving my mettle. Part of it was also the beauty in the symmetry of the chord changes, as Marion McCartland pointed out. And part of it was this feeling of, well, Coltrane provided us this roadmap. He moved on from it, and then unfortunately, he died at a very young age, at 42, in 1967. I often wondered, would Coltrane have come back to this with a more mature point of view to tackle it, its inner workings, its inner meaning, to find something musical that could be done with it? Well, we'll never know. the master left it for the rest of us to figure out is this a musical statement can something truly transcendently musical be made out of it but it didn't start that way for me first the ego part came in i gotta master these changes to prove myself to the jazz community well that didn't work i did write dozens of variations to practice on this tune and most of them are just mechanical exercises and dull. But I'm a musical person, so in in investigating it, I started to veer more towards that other part of the equation. Can something musical be made out of it? Can the symmetry lead us down a path towards something more profound? So somewhat inadvertently, I started to go down that path. This is like maybe in my mid-40s, I started investigating it, and I'd put it away, and I'd come back to it thinking, this is insane. There's Why am I doing this? But I would come back to it, and I'm coming back to it today as a kind of uh, stop along the way, because in truth, I finally settled on a full composition based on this song that is written for jazz trio, that is piano, bass, and drums, and 
Rapper. That's right. I wrote rap lyrics to it. And I hope to record this someday. The composition is not 100% complete. But what you're hearing interspersed here are solo piano versions of some of that. able to make a real piece of music out of this because I left behind the idea of can I prove myself on this? Can I show to the jazz community, look at me, I can nail this thing. And instead, and you know, I have almost no connection with the jazz community, so I don't know why I felt the need to do that. But instead, I focused on the inner beauty of the tune to see what I could build out of it. And that's what you're hearing here. My attempt to tackle this roadmap that Coltrane left us. Does it work? It still feels rather symmetrical, but I think I've been able to make something out of it.
Hey, it's me, Peter Saltzman, again. I mean, who else? Stay tuned for the next episode of Improvisations on the Ledge, which you'll be gently notified about if you subscribe. And if you love the music, you can hear a ton more on my Bandcamp page, petersaltzman.bandcamp.com, where you can also subscribe and get access to exclusive content, including all the music from these podcasts, not to mention all the non-piano music, like my one-minute songs. And if you want to support my work directly, please check out my newly launched Patreon page. That's patreon.com slash petersaltzman. Finally, be sure to check out my main website, petersaltzman.com, for all the latest. And don't worry, all of these links are in the notes below. Thanks for listening. <laughs>